You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, just our normal set of reminders to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Continue to leave those Apple reviews. It really helps us grow the show. Uh, it helps us you know, get more viewers, more, more looks, more attention around it. And uh, any fans of the show can tell you that how much they love hearing these stories. And we want more people to hear them each and every time out there. So please go leave us an Apple review. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. We genuinely appreciate all the love and support. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. Um, you can see all of our Hazard Ground episodes right there on YouTube uh, if that's your preferred method of watching. And if you would also like to watch them, you can download the Killcliff TV app. Our partners over at Killcliff who help us put this whole show together. Don't forget to go to killcliff.com and check out all of your great Killcliff flavors, CBD included. If you guys are into CBD, Killcliff makes some of the best clean energy drinks on the market. You guys know I am a fan. I use the Ignite, which is the pre-workout, the Recover, the post-workout, some of the best stuff on the market. Clean energy drinks. So uh, certainly worth an investment, killcliff.com. Uh, speaking of investments, if you'd like to help out and donate to veterans charities, you can do so right from your own couch, right from your smartphone, just by going to hazardground.com first and click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. Uh, it'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we'll take a percentage and donate that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. So it's an easy way for you guys to help out veterans. It also works from your smartphone. It'll redirect you to the app. So if you save your credit card information, all that stuff, very user-friendly. But again, hazardground.com is the website, and you can go to Amazon through there. All right, let's get to this week's guest. Again, uh, just a quick note. On our, this week's guest background, he was uh, now a former Army captain, spent a little bit over eight years in the military, had one deployment in the, in the military intelligence field overseas, and then after the military, went on to become a meteoric star in American politics, um, was a state senator, went on to uh, become a senator, and then decided, in the midst of possibly being talked about being run for president, decided to pull back and run for mayor of his home uh, hometown of Kansas City, and right before the election, pulled out of the mayoral race, which he was clearly going to win uh, because he decided to go seek the help that he needed for PTSD and more. It is Jason Kander returning to the Hazard Ground podcast. Jason, welcome back, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Mark. I'm thrilled to be back here with you. I really, I really appreciate it. It's a great chance to talk to this audience and to talk to you, so thank you. Yeah, and the name of the book that is coming out on July 5th, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD, and, and the focus of the book, and, and we don't often do this, um, you know, like cat people on to promote books and, and things of that nature, it's just kind of not what the show is about. But there's a couple of things here that I think are important to tell the audience ahead of time. One, your interpersonal struggle with figuring all of this out, I think is an incredibly important message for all veterans to hear. Um, and I think it's it's super important to understand PTSD and, and the mental health and the mental trauma that you go through and how to navigate through it and what sort of pitfalls you're going to get through and some of the things that go through our own heads um, that prevent us from addressing the things that we have or, or the things that we're dealing with. And then secondly, the reason why I wanted to bring you back uh, and um, I wanted to extend, <laughs> I'm sorry if I'm going to get uh, tripped up here. No, go for it. I wanted to extend a personal thank you to you. Um, you and one other person are the, um, and I'm starting to get emotional, so I apologize. You guys, you are one of the people that um, allowed me to finally look at my own self and figure out all the things that I was dealing with and all the things that I had not bothered to uncover for a really long time. And uh, I don't know why I'm getting so emotional right now, but I just, you know, it's, um, it's emotional stuff. It is. And, and you don't, you don't realize how emotional it is. Um, and, you know, e even though I'm not there yet, uh, as far as finishing all of it, you know, 
there are some days I wish I never opened Pandora's box. Um, <laughs> yeah. And there are days that I'm glad that I did. And there are days that I question if I'm doing enough. And there are days that I, I try to figure out, am I, am I, am I getting better? Um, you know, and somebody close to me had asked me, why is all this stuff coming up 15 years later? And, and I, I didn't really have a good, I said, I don't know, because I, I guess it's the first time that I've bothered to address it. It's the first time that I've actually sat down and had conversations about it. And, you know, I, I, I guess the impetus was, and I don't want to make this about me. I apologize. I feel like I'm talking too much. No, 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 please. Um, I, I wrote this book for guys like you and me. So this is exactly what I want to talk about. And so I, uh, I, I wanted to be a better dad and I, I didn't want to pass my PTSD onto my kids. Um, you know, and even to this day, my, my kids will say, dad, you're, you're yelling like, you know, and it's just like, it, it is gut wrenching because like, there are times I feel like I'm justified. I'm like, dude, it's the fifth time I've asked you to do something and you haven't moved yet. You're <laughs> sure. I know you understand me. It's uh, sometimes hard to differentiate what's yeah. me and what's just like the regular frustrations of being right. a parent. Right. And, and, and then there are other times after it's done when I know that I was over the line and I didn't in that moment control myself. And, and that, those are the moments I struggle to figure out if I'm getting better and if I should have done this and maybe I was more functional, I think, or, or not. And anyway, I, I, I'm, I'm rambling, but I did, I just, I wanted to say thank you. Uh, and that's part of the reason that I wanted to have you back on, you know, I've been doing this podcast for over five years and a, a lot of people have asked me about my story and I've never told it. Um, I have started to divulge some of this stuff, but you were and are, an integral part of why I am where I am today. And you are a major inspiration to me um, for looking at what I am literally dealing with on a day in day out basis and acknowledging it as part of, of who I am uh, and, and hoping to, to overcome all that. So um, in short, again, humble. Thank you. Thank hey, you very much. It means a lot to me, Mark. Thank you. I, I, I remember, you know, I don't know how was it like maybe a year ago that you and I talked first on on the show. It was the first time we'd ever met, and it was uh, just a conversation. I was just kind of guesting on the show to promote my own podcast and to talk about PTSD a bit. I, you know, the book was obviously at least a year. I wasn't even done writing it, um, and I remember after that conversation, uh, it really stuck with me. And I remember thinking, uh, I feel like. I feel like Mark has some stuff to address and, you know, and I have conversations like that with other veterans and, and other people who have experienced trauma, you know, relatively often, but it really stuck with me. And I remember, I remember thinking, I, I don't know if it made a difference, but I hope it did. And then, uh, you know, not too long ago, you texted me and told me that um, you had decided to address it. And then we talked on the phone and like, and it just, that's the kind of stuff that, um, I, you know, when I was running for office, like my idea of making an impact was so wholesale. Like it was like, I felt like I had to change a law, change it, you know, in order to make a difference. And what's really rewarding about what I do now, whether it be, you know, as president of National Expansion at Veterans Community Project or in writing this book and speaking out about mental health, I, I have the luxury, like the privilege and the opportunity to actually see when I can make a difference for an individual person. And that's, that's super rewarding. And, uh, and, and then it pays forward. So like you talking about it now, like there's people who listen to this, who like, they listen to this, um, all the people who listen to this, listen to this because they like you and they admire you. So as you talk about it, um, that's going to make a difference for other people and it's going to convince them to get help. And then for the people listening, maybe you don't have a podcast. Maybe you don't have like a huge social media following. doesn't matter. You got a job, you got a social orbit. If you decide to address some stuff and you talk about it, you might save the life of somebody, you know, and they may never even mention it to you. Um, so it's super important and, uh, it means a lot to me. And it's the reason I wrote this book. It's because if I had had this book available to me 14 years ago, I would have gone and gotten treatment. And had I done that, it wouldn't have gotten as bad for me as it did. You know, I, trauma is not wine. It doesn't age well. It's like an, <laughs> it's an avocado and, and like nobody builds <laughs> avocado cellars, right? Uh, because they, they don't last that long. They get oh, worse and worse right. and worse. 
so that's that's why I wrote the book. And um, on top of that, one other thing in the in the vein of po- plugging the book, um, just to make people feel a little less slimy about how often I'm about to say I say this in the book over the next however many minutes right. is uh, all of my royalties um, for Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. All of my royalties are going to the fight against veteran suicide and veteran homelessness at Veterans Community Project. So I will unabashedly promote it as a result. <sighs> I mean, again, I, I I don't want to turn this into my story. Like, I, I, it's not. People listen to this so because much. of you. We can make this I, I, entire well, thing about you. I mean, well, I don't know if they do, but, you know, I mean, I, I, I do feel like I do a good interview, but I don't know if they're doing it. Yeah, here. but but you know how it is. Like, uh, like no, you, you've had the thing happen where we both have a podcast. You've had the thing happen where when someone recognizes you, they don't say, oh, you know, Colonel Zeno. They go, Mark. And you're like, oh, does my kid go to school with this person's kid? Like. But it's the reason that they feel that way is because you come into their into their AirPods or whatever right, yeah. once a week or whatever it is, and and they feel like they've just had like phone calls with you many right. many times, like they have a personal relationship with you. So you have you, you no, play an I, important I got role. Two for messages them. this week from listeners who were just like, "I love the show. Thank you so much for doing this." And then that's my version of of help, like the way it's your version. It, 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 right. Every time I get one of those messages, it resonates. Why? Um, you know, this show is is popular and people come back and they love it and everything else. But I wanted to talk about some of the, you know, major topics of the book with you. Um, and where I was going with before I said, I didn't want to make this about me. It's like, you know, one of the th- major themes you talk about the importance of recognizing and accepting treatment, you know, it, it's, and, and I'll just relate it through our own individual experiences, right? Like you obviously started to realize things were wrong. It's like, I knew things weren't a hundred percent copacetic, but I never, I was always able to function. So it never really threw me off. It's, it's after I had a family and I really started to realize, and what happened was subsequently as stressors started to come in, my response to them changed, right? Like when I was, when I had gotten back from my deployments and I was a single guy and didn't have any care in the world, sure. I could get bent and get out of shape, but it was easy for me to regulate because I only had to care for myself. When, when there are people around you in your in your sphere of influence that are affected by your behavior, it's different. Like your friends can get mad at you, hang up the phone and walk away and you're still going to be your friends. And it's not a big deal. When you have to lay next to the person that you have just irritated the hell out of and snapped at, or you have to get those kids to school because you just bit their head off at breakfast, you start to realize that, okay, um, there are second and third order of effects that I am now influencing and affecting. And that was sort of the signal for me that I really needed to start looking at where I am. And, and it, you had talked about a, a similar signal. You had the you, conversation was the only with your wife that, Hey, I am, I'm, I'm not in a good place. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of, you know, what were the triggers for you? I should, I, I guess to put in a question form that really started to lead you down the road that, Hey, there's, there's something not right. Yeah. Um, there's a few things for me and definitely that's one of them. Like the recognition uh, that look, I, I uh, ever since I, I had a really good dad and I still have a really good dad and a really good mom. Um, and so one of my aspirations in life before I deployed was I wanted to be a really good dad and I wanted to be a really good husband. And for a while I was, and then I deployed and then I, things kind of went off the rails for me a little bit. And I, I was there and there were ways in which I was good, but, but I wasn't doing as good of a job as I could do. And worse than that, um, because I, you know, my symptoms kind of ran the gamut. One of them was I, I didn't sleep for about 11 years. I had night terrors. I had, I also had hypervigilance and that became self-loathing and shame and, and anger and all this stuff. And eventually I was exhausted and I got pretty depressed by all of it, which will happen if you don't sleep for like a really long time. And then I was depressed for long enough that I started to have suicidal ideation, but my suicidal ideation, which is to say suicidal thoughts, a lot of it was to, to your point, a lot of it was, I felt like a burden. I felt like a burden, particularly to my wife and my son. And what happened for me, it wasn't like all at once, you know, it gradually built. What happened for me was I didn't want to want to kill myself. I didn't, you know, that's what it was. I, I was starting to feel that way, but I didn't want to feel that way. And I knew I didn't want to feel that way. And I wanted to be around for my wife and for my son. And I could feel how things were going but the other thing was for me, I wanted to be a participant in my life. You know, the, the book is the story of me pursuing the presidency uh, 
in some ways because I didn't want to deal with myself and right. I didn't want to go, you know, because before I was running for mayor, I was pretty well running for president and then decided yeah, I'm pretty messed up. I didn't want to admit to myself that it was PTSD. So I was like, I'm going to fill up this hole inside my, myself by becoming mayor of my hometown and, and making a difference there. And I said, also, I'll go to the VA. Well, I was going to become mayor, but I didn't keep my promise to myself to go to the VA. And I was like, you know, I, I felt like all those years pursuing that stuff, like having professional success, it was like I wasn't there for it. Just the same way that I wasn't present when I was with my family. I felt like I was watching Jason Kander do all these things, but I didn't get to be a part of it because it always felt like all those good emotions were on the other side of this thin wall because I had suppressed, and I didn't know this stuff at the time. This is all language I gained in therapy, right? But I had this sense that like, I feel like I haven't really experienced any of this. Um, I didn't know that I could, like, I didn't know that I could get better. And, and I guess to your original point in this question, which was sort of why do we feel like it's not for us? Why do we feel like we don't deserve to go get better? Why do we feel like we should just tough it out and through it? It's because the military does, and we, you and I talked about this a little a year ago, I think the military does a really good job of this necessary form of brainwashing. And it's this thing that from the moment you, you know, get a uniform on for the first time, the message that they get across to you is what you're doing is no big deal, right? What you're doing is no big deal. And most people have it much worse. And that conditions us to always see the way in which other people have it worse. And that's why I was able to keep going into rooms, uh, basically by myself with people who might want to kill me in order to get information uh, for the army. It's why you were able to keep going back out and getting shot at and doing the job again the next day uh, because you were like, well, somebody's getting shot at more. Somebody got killed. I didn't get killed. And I'm like, hey, people like Mark are getting shot at. I haven't been shot at. I'm just going into these rooms worried I'm going to get kidnapped and my head cut off. But that's not, I'm telling myself that's not real combat, right? <laughs> And that's effective, right? It gets us to keep doing the job. The problem is they don't turn that switch off. So when we leave the army, you know, um, or in your case, like you're still, you're still reserve, right? Yeah. Still guard. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so like when we go back to our civilian lives, 28 days out of the month, or, or for me, get out completely eventually, nobody sits you down and goes, all right, you should know that that's actually some crazy shit. And um, yeah, some people may have had it worse, but that's yeah. actually irrelevant because your brain didn't experience what their brain did. And so it really doesn't matter. Like we kept telling you it matters, but that's not true. It well, actually- you got to contextualize things that aren't contextual, right? Like right. The, the context of being blown up versus being kidnapped. It, it, we're talking about degrees of wrongness, so to speak. And there is no degrees of wrongness, right? Bad is bad. Mm -hmm. Anything that happens to you that's bad is going to have a negative effect on you. So comparing one versus the other is, is a futile exercise. But I, there are a couple of things you hit on there that I wanted to unpack here for a moment. One, you know, my symptoms personally were not bad. I would get constant flashbacks. Um, that was, you know, I slept fine. You know, I ate fine. <laughs> First of all, can we just take that sentence apart? My, my symptoms were not that bad. I would get constant flashbacks. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I just, <laughs> just like that's how they teach us to think, man. Yeah, like, <laughs> but you, I just gave the example out by. Yeah. You, yeah. Well, th th thank you. That's why you're smarter than I am. No, it's uh, why I've been through more therapy for longer. That's it. Um, so, you know, I, I wasn't like in that space where. But, you know, suicidal ideations. This is at least for me. I'm with you 100 percent. I didn't want to kill myself. I didn't want to die. I wanted to be a dad. I wanted to be there for my kids. I wanted to, to always be at their side and, and never leave them. And, and I wanted to, to be part of my family. The problem is, is that there is this heavy tug in the other direction of, but I can't stop feeling pain. I can't stop feeling the way I'm feeling and I don't know how to get out of it. And I, at least the, the, the rationalization as, Easy as it sounds and as stupid as it sounds when you're saying it out loud, internally, it is a struggle. At least I won't be in pain anymore. I won't feel this anymore. There will be a sense of peace in or inside me if I'm gone. And you weigh that out on a daily basis. And I'll, I'll even pull back the curtains a little further here for me. Um, 
And uh, a former army colonel, uh, Mike Jason, who's been a guest on the podcast, he's talked about this religiously on Twitter if you follow him, uh, and it, he's 100% correct on it. Veteran suicides are so high because most of us already own weapons, and they are mm-hmm. easily accept- accessible, and they're, they, they are there. If we could figure out a way to remove that from the equation, the ease to do it with, and, and I do own a weapon, and I can't tell you how many times I've had to just walk myself out of the room because staying in the room leaves that option on the table longer. And that is the, for me, I don't want to say for everybody, but I feel like it's pretty similar, is the essence of the internal struggle of suicidal ideations. How do I stop feeling this way? I don't know how to do it, but I want all these other things. And at one point, one side outweighs the other. Yeah. I, so I own a, uh, I own a firearm, I, but what I do is I own it but I keep it at my father-in-law's house in a safe. <laughs> Mine's and, in a safe in my house. <laughs> yeah. But you know, so that's, that's for me, that's my approach, but l- let me, let me unpack that a little more because I had this question of my therapist not long ago. And it was because, you know, since getting treatment, I really, I, fortunately I haven't dealt with suicidal ideation hardly at all in quite a while. But interestingly, like I had a, uh, a visit to um, my primary care physician where uh, my cholesterol was a little bit elevated, even though like I, I eat really healthy and everything, it was more of a genetic thing. And so now I take some stuff to deal with that, but it, it bothered me a lot. And I was like, so confused by that because, and I went to my therapist, at the VA, and I was like, I don't understand how just a couple of years ago, when I came to you, I wanted to kill myself. Like I had feelings about wanting to kill myself. And now I get this news that says, oh, you may have this health thing that could affect your longevity. And I'm super upset by it. Like, how, how can those two things coexist within a couple of years? And he, and he was like, well, because they're both about the same thing. They're about control. He was like, you learned when you were in a combat zone that if you didn't control the situation, that was bad, that you had to maintain control of every situation all the time or you would die. And then when you when you felt completely out of control, when you when you hadn't slept, you were exhausted, you'd been depressed for a long time, you felt like a burden on people, feeling like you'd be better off dead wasn't about wanting to kill yourself. It was about wanting to regain control over the situation. He's like, and now you don't have any interest in that. You're doing much better. You're you, you know, we've dealt with your underlying trauma. You know, you're you're to a point where it's not uh, disrupting your life. He's like. But you will probably never lose that sense inside you that says, control the situation as best you can. And now you're just desperate to control that cholesterol and and that situation. It doesn't really matter that one is prolonging your life and one isn't. Yeah, that's uh, the the control issue is is, is something I think that, you know, it's a key word in all of this because it's part of what we what we've been taught. A couple other things. And then I want to hit some other points. But. You know, and the other thing that I think from a suicide standpoint was, you know, how can I consider myself a leader if I'm going to eliminate myself? If I'm just a leader of my family, right? Like, how mm-hmm. can I consider myself a, a anything if I'm going to take myself out of the equation? And I, and I struggle with that a lot because leadership has always been so important to me. It still is, otherwise I wouldn't be serving, right? Like, it's it's still leading right. in some size, way, shape, or form. What would it look like to everybody else if I quit on myself as much as it would be quitting on everybody else. So I think that's another part of it. But, you know, I wanted to go back to symptoms and ask you a question because I wonder how you dealt with this. The other big symptom I had was hypervigilance. And, and in my therapy sessions, we've gone over this a lot. Um, I have been so conditioned uh, and have done this so many times that literally it is almost instantaneous for me. I can walk into a place I've never been and immediately I scan the entire room. I find every point of egress and entry, choke points, bottlenecks, everything that's going to be a spot if somebody comes from this way, that way. I I have already run through this whole scenario in my head in literally a split second to figure out. And as they're walking me to the table, wherever I'm going, I have my head on a swivel 360 and I figured everything out about this room and where I am and, and what could be dangerous. And so we go through this in therapy and my therapist was explaining to me, but okay, you're not, you're not in Baghdad. Like you don't need to do that. You're in a restaurant, you know? And, and I talked to her so much about like, okay, I want to be the one who's prepared if something goes wrong. And she tells me there's nothing wrong with that. And and the one thing I told her, I said, I feel like I almost feel safer with the hypervigilance because she took me through this whole exercise on how to not be hypervigilant about it. 
sit down, remind yourself where you are, remind yourself who you were. And I'm, and I'm sitting there and she gave me this. Whole, I said, I got to be honest with you. The exercise you just gave me feels like it would take 15 minutes when it takes about 1.5 seconds for me to just do the vigilant thing, the <laughs> thing that I do. So in the interest of time, I'm probably going to choose the hypervigilance thing. Like, you know, uh, that's still a major contention point for me. I almost don't want to not be hypervigilant. And now since I started talking about it more, my therapist, I'm even like more super hypervigilant just because <laughs> I'm, my antennas it. are up for it. Yeah. So I, you know, did you ever have any experience like that with it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was like I was when I started prolonged exposure therapy on this. I don't know if you've been doing this thing where like you're supposed to go to a restaurant and sit with your back to the door for 45 minutes. And oh, hell no. It, that was what they had me do. And it sucks. Really? Um, oh, yeah. no way. It, it, it works, though, eventually um, in the sense <laughs> that you eat at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or I just have to sit there like a stranger by myself at a table. Well, at first, what I was doing is I would be like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom. And I would do that like eight times, which was my excuse to see the whole place as I went back and forth. Um, and what I eventually got to was a place where, uh, my desire to sit with my back, um, you know, to the wall and facing the door is a preference and not a requirement for, for me now, which sounds, um, like no big distinction, but it, it's the sense that I can, like, I now know I can go to a restaurant with my wife and I can sit with my back to the door for 45 minutes if I want to. And, and, and I do want to often because I want to be able to be present with my wife. I don't want my eyes scanning the room. I want to be able to, you know, if we're on a date, I want to be able to make eye contact with her and not think about anything else, or at least not be distracted by anything else. But there's also days where it's like, man, it's been a stressful day. And I'll say to her, I'll be like, hey, I want that seat. Is that cool? And she's like, yeah, it's fine. You know, um, so it that's, a, that's been my journey with it. Um, but then the other thing about it that, basically what motivated me to really want to conquer it, it wasn't so much those little, um, you know, coping mechanisms, like the way we sit in restaurants and stuff like that. I mean, it's funny where I work, you know, we're mostly combat veterans. So like the room that my desk is in at my office, it's all, every desk is just lined up against the outside wall. All of them are facing the one door. I mean, it's hilarious. I didn't even notice it till a reporter was doing a piece on me recently and he, and he put it in the article and I was like, Oh yeah, that's true. Um, but it's more the stuff like um, when the meal is over and uh, my wife wants to sit and talk like we used to before I deployed, you know, and there's something inside me that's saying like, you've been in one place too long. You got to move. Um, I, I wanted to, I wanted to make that not have the grip on me that it had. And the other thing is the hypervigilance in my case contributes to my nightmares, because if I'm hypervigilant during the day, but I don't process it, um, then it causes, it, it, it increases my nightmares. And what it all really, really comes down to is when your brain is somewhere else thinking about the threat, that kind of thing, it's not on the task you want it to be on. And often for me, that is, I want to be fully present. And just like I know you do with my kids, like if they want to, if they're talking to me about what might seem small to me, like some, you know, gossip drama at school, I don't want them to have any doubt that dad is fully in this conversation and right. he cares about this and the hypervigilance, particularly like, you know, you get halfway through the story and, and your son or your daughter or whatever gets to a part in the story where they jumped off something that's four feet high. And, I want to be the dad that can go like, oh, that's funny. And not the dad that's like, you shouldn't do that and derails the entire story. But that's my need to protect right. everybody around me derails their story, you know? Right. Uh, from from that standpoint, you talked about your wife uh, and, you know, their her level of support for you during the whole thing. And we, we touched on it at the top. When you recognize the secondary effect of your PTSD it goes beyond you, mm -hmm. um, the impact on, on military spouses and families, you know, uh, Based on your experience, and again, I'm, it's not fair for me to talk about this. I'm still going through it. You know, I'll say this much. I talked to a another guest on the podcast here, John Troxell, who is the senior enlisted advisor uh, to the chief of staff. Uh, he's an amazing man and really, really sharp guy. And he gave me a book to give to my kids uh, called Why Is Dad So Angry? And it's like this, this cartoon book with these lions on it and everything else. And I gave it to my kids to read. And I sat down with them and I read it with them. And one of my twins, my son, Dominic, as soon as it was over, turned to me and started crying right there on the spot. And he's like, Daddy, I'm scared. Hmm. And, you know, I tried to reassure him that, you know, 
Um, you know, cause the book talks about like, there's a fire inside, you know, and sometimes the fire flames up, right. Hmm. And, and we have to put it out and you know, th- why daddy gets upset and why daddy yells. And, um, cause I wanted my kids not to have to feel that way. I didn't want them to be scared of dad sometimes. Hmm. And, and, and again, full disclosure, as I peel back the curtains of my life here, there are times to this day where I scream, my kids get really, the first thing they do is cry. I'm like, daddy, you scared me. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just that holy shit moment. Like, who am I? Like, what am I doing? You know, like, I've, I've been I, there. Yeah. Is this who I want to be? Like, is, is, is it, forget the dad. Is this the person that I'm going to allow myself to continue to be? Uh, and so it's very, very um, personal from that standpoint, but you know, it's that sort of second and third order of effect that if you don't acknowledge that your kids and your wife and your spouse and your family are reacting that way as part of the problem, then you're really falling behind the curve here, so to speak. There are people listening to this right now who really need to hear this because I was one of these people who I was convinced for about a decade that uh, I was married to this increasingly difficult person who didn't seem to understand <laughs> things like how dangerous the world is and, you know, and, and how important something is that I think is super important and who seems to keep nagging me about things like whether I'm paying attention or fully present in the moment. And, and it was going through therapy that was like the big twist at, at the end of an M. Night Shyamalan movie where I went, oh, shit, it's me <laughs> the whole time. Like, the, you know, it's the the that voice is coming from inside the house. Right. Like and so uh, that was a super important thing for me. And so, yes, I wanted to write the book in a way that did two things, um, because I'm you know, the book is, it's my memoir, it's narrated by me, but there are also in each chapter, there's a page or two where it comes in. There's a first person narration by my wife, Diana, giving her perspective on what was happening at that time. And I wanted to do that for two reasons. One was it was going to be a little much for people who didn't have mental health issues to read, you know, this stuff from somebody who I'm trying to relate it in terms of the language I had available at the time that we are in the story. Right. So like, I don't have the language of therapy if I'm, you know, it's if it's like 2010 and I'm explaining how I felt, I didn't allow myself to use that language I have now. I just tried to explain it in the language I had available then. Well, if you've never experienced any mental health issues, you're you might be like, I'm having trouble connecting with what this person is is experiencing, which is why I wanted my wife to come in and say, here's what I was observing. That's about so critical. Jason. The, the, the receiver of the message, the receiver of the action. I think it's so critical because when you can tell your story, that doesn't necessarily mean people can understand it. Right. I need somebody who's who's heard this story to translate it for them. I think that's incredibly important. I wanted the reader to know what it felt like to me, but I also wanted them to know from my wife what it looked like and how she was interpreting it. But then the other part is for those people, uh, I wanted them to understand what it would be to live with somebody like going through with what what I've gone through, what you've gone through. And I wanted people to know about secondary post-traumatic stress because uh, we didn't know about it until I'd already started therapy. And, and if my therapist hadn't mentioned it to me and suggested that Diana go get her own therapy, we wouldn't have. And that would have not really accomplished what we were going for. And so it's a very real thing. So Um, she went to therapy as well. mm -hmm. Yeah, for PTSD. She didn't have the underlying trauma, but she developed a lot of the symptoms. She became hypervigilant. She, you know, she, she had these struggles. She had a lot of anxiety. And it was, you know, because if, if you are going to bed every night next to somebody who is telling you over and over again, how much danger there is in the world. And, and then like, in my case, waking up with these horrible night terrors and then relating the entire story to her when she's half awake after she's had to act like as she jokingly says my service animal and like shake, you know, shaking my body to get me to wake up. Cause she knows <laughs> I'm, I'm having a night terror. Um, you know, after a while that, that has an effect on you. And it was really important for me, for people to, to see it through her eyes as well. You use the key word there on, you know, the feeling of PTSD, like what it actually feels like, because there is a, is a biophysical reaction. And that was, you know, for me, that was one of the other, I think, key sort of things that tipped me off was the anxiety. I could physically feel it. Like mm-hmm. I could physically feel it to the yeah. point where it felt like I was having chest pains, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I could th- then after that, it was 
you know, the head starts throbbing and my shoulders feel like I'm carrying a 50 pound weight on them. You know, I mean, all these things just started manifesting itself. Um, and, and the frustrating part is like, it was all self-induced and like, at least this is the way I felt Jason. Like I was like, Hey, stupid. If you didn't just lose your mind three seconds ago and scream at the top of your lungs, your chest wouldn't be constricted. Your head wouldn't be throbbing. Your shoulders wouldn't feel like they're carrying a weight right now. You know? Uh, and I go through that. I go through that exercise of like, well, it's all my fault. So now I've got to figure out a way to, to re-regulate myself. Um, and, and that requires me to actually get away from the people I just affected. And so I withdraw, right? Which is also yeah. even worse to do after you've just hurt somebody or affected somebody you care about. The last thing, the worst, the last thing they want you to ignore. Yeah. But it's the only place you feel safe. And so round and round we go. You wind up creating emotional and physical distance from the people you love the most because you're trying to protect them from you. And and the whole time you're also feeling like, okay, uh, I when you when you do things like say, well, that's my fault. It's self-induced. I just did that to myself. What I had to learn in therapy was self-compassion. And one of the ways that I think about that is uh, this is an injury, right? So it's not, I didn't do it to myself, right? Like I have PTSD. I, I have PTSD because I got hurt over there. And my wound is I got PTSD, you know? And so I try and remember that. And I try and have some, some compassion for myself. And then it also is why we treat it, right? Like if you got your leg blown off during your deployment, uh, you wouldn't be like, what the hell is my deal? Why can't I stand on two legs? <laughs> you know what I mean? You'd, you'd be like, you'd get a prosthesis, right? And you'd be like, oh, and you wouldn't shame yourself for needing, or hopefully you wouldn't shame yourself for needing the prosthesis. You'd be like, I remember that I got wounded and I lost this leg. And I had to get to a point where I could say, okay, I, I got an injury, uh, an emotional, a mental, a moral, however you want to put it, injury, and I have to address it. And so I go to therapy to address it. I now do things like I meditate, I work out, I, you know, every couple of months, if I'm just like, there are days where I'm just like, I can feel that constriction in my chest you're talking about. I can feel that thing where there's like PTSD is like right behind my neck, almost like where you want to turn and see it, but you can't, but you know, it's there. I can feel that shit. And those are the times when every, every couple of months I might say, you know what? Uh, mental health day. Like I'm canceling all my shit today. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to do something that I like, and I'm going to like process what's been bothering me. Um, but that's no different than the fact that like I had a knee injury a long time ago and I ice my knee after I go on a long run. Right. But you, but you just got to get to the point where you don't see a difference between the two. Uh, I don't know if you address this in the book, but I, I wanted to ask you again, I feel bad because I keep going back to me, but you're like smarter and more experienced at this than I am. So I'm, I'm taking notes. I, I'm just like, you know what it is? Like I've been in therapy longer. So it's more like, it's like, I'm a third year graduate student and you're a first year. That's all it is. Cause it's like getting a master's in yourself. That's right. All it is. I, that's a great way to put it. I, uh, I was so resistant to the idea of medication. Mm -hmm. I just anti the idea of a pill. Like it bothered me. Um, well, I have no problem taking under milligrams ibuprofen for every ache that I <laughs> yeah, have right. when I get up in the morning because that's my new challenge every day to put my feet on the floor and figure out which body part's going to hurt as soon as I stand up. Um, I have no problem with that sort of level of medicine. I have no problem with a cortisone shot. For some reason, taking a pill to fix my brain is so counter to who I am. Um, and And... I was, I had a couple of different therapists, both, you know, ones I saw for years and, you know, before I even started diagnosing this to, to all the ones I saw professionally, when I told me, I don't want, I don't want to do pills. And, and they're like, why? And I'm like, I, I just don't like the feeling. Like, I don't want to be dependent, you know, and they, I didn't want to be dependent on it. And they explained to me, you know, kind of how the pill works and what it does, which made me feel a little bit better, but, you know, medication, it makes me feel so dependent. Sure. Right. And one of the first things I said to the therapist is, okay, what's the plan to wean me off of this and get me off of it? Like, well, you're going too fast here. We haven't even started yet. And you're trying to get off. Yeah. Because like, and maybe that's the military in me. Like, what's, what does the finish line look like? All right. Like, I'll take these as long as I need to, but I need to get a defined finish line to figure out, I guess, in some weird way, if I'm fixed, if I've solved the problem, because for us, that's mission accomplishment, right? Like, that's what we're always geared towards. So where do you sit on medication? 
Well, before I answer that, let me address the idea of like fixing it or solving the problem. Um, the thing about PTSD is you don't cure it. We're never going to get cured, right? Because it's based on memories, um, which is why I always talk about it as an injury that I manage, right? And it's why I always compare it to my knee. After I go on a run, I ice my knee, right? Um, and so I manage, I manage the pain in my knee so that I can do the things I need to do. Uh, it's the same reason I take ibuprofen, just like you do, right? I'm managing that. Um, <clears throat> here's where I am on it. Uh, I'll just tell you my own experience. Um, I went in and I had a somewhat similar conversation with my therapist where I said, look, I don't want to start with medication. So I didn't say like, I don't want to do medication. I just, I don't want to start with it. And he, he said, well, look, I actually think you're a really good candidate uh, for therapy. He was like, but there may be a point where I uh, recommend medication. And I was like, okay. Uh, in my case, so far, I haven't reached that point. However, I can tell you that uh, I don't rule it out for some point in the future because I don't know what struggles I'm going to have. I don't know what additional traumas I'm going to have. That's life, man. Right. And, yeah. and also, uh, I put a lot of faith in what my therapist says. So like, if at some point my therapist, whose name is Nick, if Nick is like, I think it's time for us to try this, I'm going to be like, okay, let's try it. I'm going to have a conversation first. And here's why. Uh, and, and I say all this to say, the last thing I want is for somebody to listen to this conversation and do that veteran thing where they're like, but that guy didn't need medication. What's wrong with me that I do? Well, you know what? That has nothing to do with it. Like for whatever reason, my brain chemistry so far hasn't, you know, made that a part of my therapy. Well, but it also hasn't made EMDR a part of my therapy. That doesn't mean I'm any better or worse. It just means that's right. not a thing I've tried. If if cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure hadn't done the job well enough for me to manage my symptoms, I would have gone and got MDR, EMDR. And if that hadn't done it, I would have gone and got medication. So my thinking on all this is do what you got to do to be able to be the man in, or woman in your family and in your life that you, that you need to be. And... Um, and look, if the medicine makes you feel better, then fucking great. That's the whole idea, yeah, right? Well, it, it worked. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, the that idea. Was, it actually did work. Like, and, and like people who wear eyeglasses aren't like, what the fuck is wrong with me that my vision isn't just working the way God intended? No, they got eyeglasses to make it better. And I'm sure at some point in our history, people are like, this sorcery is bullshit. And it's bad for you. Well, you know, <laughs> science has moved forward. And this stuff, God put this stuff on earth. And we figured out how to put it in a pot and put it together and make it work for us. And awesome. That's, that's nature uh, is how I view it. Yeah. I mean, and I'll say that the one thing the medication did do that it, it took away that physical feeling more than anything. Mm -hmm. Like I can get upset, but that, that physical reaction that seemed to have compounded things and make it so much more worse. Like I, I just didn't have that tightness in my chest and the overwhelming feel like, you know, all that stuff is, you know, mine's weird. Like it's got to F with you the whole day. Right. Um, so I, 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 I medicate in this sense, like when there are days where I'm just like so stressed about something and I'm like, I can't place it. And I'm like, you know, and I know it's PTSD crossed with whatever life event, you know, once every couple months, I'm just like, fuck it. And I take a gummy at like 6 PM and that's self-medicating, you know? So I can't wait to get there. I'm telling you, I, I have <laughs> I said this out loud. I say it a million times and I'm an 06 now. What do I care? Uh, as soon as I get out, I'm going to smoke weed every day. Cause if there was ever a candidate <laughs> yeah. for somebody who needed to chill the hell out, it's me. Trust yeah. me. So uh, I'm on board. I yeah. I'm gonna do it while I'm in uniform, but you know, sure. <laughs> I just the retirement papers to light the joint for crying. <laughs> I mean, we can just photocopy and there'll be an iperm somewhere, you know, it'll be good. So, <laughs> um, you know, some of the other things you touch on in the book, uh, and, and this will have to be through your experience, but you know, uh, whether the withdrawal of Afghanistan or, you know, in your case, the, the political rise and fall and that you had basically the events of your life around you, both in your job and your home, uh, you know, geopolitical events, things of that nature, and the effect that they have on our PTSD. Unfortunately, there's no way to forecast how an event is going to affect your PTSD until the event happens. So it's nothing mm -hmm. you can ever really get out in front of, right? Like one of the biggest things in my personal life, we had a we had a, a death in the family. Um, my wife's sister uh, killed herself, and mm. that had a couple of trickle down events that caused a ton of stress in our family. And that for me was one of those events where it impacted my PTSD to the point where like it was like okay, uh, yeah, I am I am losing control right now, uh, and I need to get it back on track fast. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I find that this happens to me a lot. And what the way it usually goes, and this will probably sound familiar to you, is for the first couple of weeks of it, I have a lot of conversations with my wife where she's like, I think that this thing that happened is really bothering you. And I'm like, no, it's not. I'm just stressed about, and I'll just name some like shit from the schedule from that day or whatever. Like, you know, it's just hard to get him to practice and coach the team on time when I got to get all this equipment and, you know, which is not what it is. But like in my head, I really believe that at the time. And then as soon as I kind of have a quiet moment, a couple of weeks into it and I go, okay, I think maybe, yeah even though I don't, I'm not thinking about that thing. It's probably because I'm avoiding thinking about that thing. And I think that's why I'm feeling this stress in my body and in my mind. And then I don't know about you, but like, you know, it's that old, a buddy of mine said to me uh, once that, it, that this was the GI Joe thing, knowing is half the battle. And, and I, I, I don't feel all better once I admit it to myself and, and figure it out. But when I go, okay, this is what's bothering me. I get that little hint of control that says like, oh, well, now I have an explanation. And it's not dissimilar really in a way to the way I felt when I was first diagnosed with PTSD, because it was like, at least I have a fucking explanation. Like, at least I understand what it is. Um, but yeah, in general, you're right. Like the thing, we've had this entire conversation rightfully in the context of being a, a combat veteran, but um you know, people are just walking around with all sorts of trauma and you don't have to have been to war uh, for this. You could have been in a bad car accident or lost a loved one, like you were just mentioned, or survived cancer or had a bad divorce, man. I mean, it's like different trauma affects different people in different ways and trauma is trauma. And the truth is, it's just life. Like you're going to encounter more stuff. And so one of the traps that I have now learned to try to avoid is this thing where I go, well, I've been to therapy. I've gotten myself to the point where I am, you know, and then stop maintaining it and stop doing the work. And then you slide backwards. And so ironically, you must be hypervigilant about this, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and again, I, I, everything that seems to happen in a sort of political military space I think all of us to a certain extent take personally. Um, yeah. You're still serving or you had just gotten out of uniform and you're done. Um, it's all become personal to us. Uh, and, uh, you know, we don't need to get into the whole effect that social media has on it and the media itself has on it and how they present it and shit like that stuff we can't control. Right. We have to focus on. And that's what we're always told in this whole PTSD journey is control what you can control. Right. Like, so that's a big part of it. And, and, you know, unless you have other things that, you know, that I think that's a, a focal point of this, but um, when, when those things happen, it goes back to kind of what we said at the beginning, like, you know, being blown up versus being shot at versus being kidnapped, you know, it, these events are all separate and shouldn't be put together. But when, you know, political military events happen now, we seem to pull them into our world even though they've had zero effect on us as far as physically being there, like we would be if we were in combat. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. Um, I, you know, you and I have barely talked about it, but I don't think we have the same politics, but it doesn't really matter uh, because it, it, and I'm glad we don't for the purposes of this conversation, right? Because, right. because it, 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 you can come out completely differently on an issue, but if you fought for the country, uh, at least from my perspective, if you fought for the country, it's just like, it feels so unjust when things aren't going the way you think they should be going. Right. And whether you're right or wrong, like it doesn't matter. Like it, it is triggering. And then what happens is, and I'm going to use an example, but I don't want that example to color. Like it doesn't really matter. Right. What the example is, but for me, like right now, the January 6th hearings that have been going on, um, you know, I have my view on that. Uh, I don't really want to get into what it is because I don't want to alienate anybody listening because I don't want them to miss the rest of this mental health message if they disagree with my view. But as somebody who fought for the country, like it really personally fucking pisses me off, you know, and and I and at night sometimes I'll be watching clips from it and I'll get all upset and animated. And my wife rightfully will be like, hey, don't do that before you go to bed. Like you're getting yourself all fired up. And I'm like, but this is important. And she's like, why is it important that you watch it? And I'm, and I'll come up with like a BS reason. I'll be like, well, cause I'm going to have to talk about it on my podcast. And she's like, you just did your podcast today. It's in six days. You don't need to watch that. And it's like, okay. Yeah. But, and, um, 
and so I guess the answer is just like allowing yourself to, because what happens to me is then I go like, well, that's not stressing me out. I have nothing to do with that. I'm not in Congress. I'm not, it's just on TV. And I, I want to act like it doesn't bother me that way. No, it does. It does. It affects my PTSD. Anything that is stressful. That's what we learned, man. Like we learned that every threat goes to a 10. Like there's no, like when, when you have PTSD and you've been from combat, like your threat meter, it doesn't have like a one through 10. It's like that thing at the carnival where you, yeah. yeah, yeah, you you hit the thing and if it hits the bell, it, you know, then you, but it's like, for us, it's like that little thing has a magnet in it. And no matter how you hit it, it goes up to the bell because that's what our brain understands. And so the, again, going back to self-compassion and being like, no, that is what's bothering me. And that's okay. That doesn't make me weird. Like that's what's, that's what's triggering me right now. And once you admit that and you go, okay, let's set that down. That's triggering me. I don't need to deal with that right now. Um, I, I make it sound easier than it is, but. No. And again, uh, you know, full disclosure, we, we, we do have divergent politics, but that would never, I, I think we'd be great running mates for the record. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that, that said, you know, it's a, and for the record, I'll, I say it all because I'm not. A, it's okay to be upset about January 6th. It, it's not a bad thing. It doesn't make you a bad person. Where that is and where that fits on your spectrum in the context of how much you want to put it as a priority of being upset about it, it's okay. Like it's different for everybody. Yeah. That's okay. It, it doesn't have to be across the board, a, a cookie cutter, single, you know, binary answer kind of deal. Uh, regardless of that, yeah, I mean, all this stuff that that invades our space that we're still still a part of. And, and I think we do it to ourselves in a sense, because we are not for the, for the folks on the outside, you almost, it's a party that wants to be pulled back in. Oh right? yeah. Like, at least I can get back into the fight, you know, like I fought. And so I fought for that and, and fought to protect that and whatever it is in the political military space, but you're like, well, now I get a chance to get back in the fight. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a draw there that's really hard to turn off uh, for all of us. Uh, and as I said at the top, you know, the reason we're having this conversation, because it's very personal to me um, and why I wanted to have you back on. But everything that happens in the military is personal to all of us. And it yeah. should be if you did it right, whether you served for three years, four years, 24 years, 34 years. If you did it right, all of it should be personal to you. Well, it becomes a huge part of who you are. Yes. Um, and and it's, <clears throat> you know, um, this stuff the re like diversion politics, that kind of thing. Like there's no political affiliation on your dog tags, but there's like a sense of like, you really care about what happens. And, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it there's, there's a lot of things that can be triggering and I think it all comes down to self-compassion. And so that's why with the book, like what I wanted to do is, you know, the book is basically in three acts, right? I mean, the first act is, you know, me getting into the military, deploying, and then uh, starting to run for office. The second act is me getting to the point where I'm pursuing the presidency while dealing with this thing that I can't figure out that's getting worse and worse and worse. And then the third act is, okay, I got to stop everything and I got to go get better. And it's basically the story of me going through therapy and getting to a point of post-traumatic growth. The book I wanted to write, the book I was excited to write was really just the third act. But I recognized that nobody's going to read that, you know, like if it's by itself, I think it's an extremely compelling third act. I, I, yeah, I think that part of the book is awesome. But if you haven't already, you know, gotten to experience the insane, you know, <laughs> insane, maybe the wrong word to use, but, um, you know, journey of like <laughs> sitting down for an hour and a half with President Obama to talk about your, you know, imminent presidential run and giving a huge speech on national television in New Hampshire, basically announcing your presidency candidacy, uh, while also like stalking your house at night because you're convinced people are trying to <laughs> kidnap your kid. Like you're not bought into the third act if you haven't lived through all that with me. Sure. And, yeah. and, um, and so that's why I figure I, you know, that's what'll get people to read it. And um, so <laughs> to that uh, note, from an insider point of the book, who told you you could run for president? <laughs> right, right. People have to read that prologue, man. You have to read the, listen, the prologue in and of itself is enough to buy into the rest of the book. So I'll say that much. When you get Thanks. when you when you go out and you purchase Invisible Storm, the prologue. Read the prologue while you're standing there in the bookstore, and you're like, okay, yeah, I'm getting this thing. Um, Thanks, man. Yeah. It, 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 it was fantastic. I just I chuckled at the whole thing. Um, and I don't know. You're probably you're a lot younger than I am, but 
Um, the movie, The American President, it, it rang a bell with me. Remember with Michael Douglas? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a scene movie. where he's trying to order flowers over the phone. Yeah. And he's like, well, I don't know if you recognize my voice, but I am the president. And they hear him go, but the United States, like, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, uh, the response, president of what? Yeah. Oh, president, are you going to run for president of what? <laughs> uh, the United States. So anyway, I just wanted to hint on, on the prologue there. Um, you know, one of the things you just mentioned that will transition well to what I want to talk about next is that the military becomes such a huge part of who you are. And. I'm not going to use one word here, even though you you may slip into saying it, but um, the military teaches you so many things that are good, and they teach you so many qualities that are good, and they teach you so many ways to survive. Uh, the flip side of that is not looking at your own vulnerability and a level of masculinity, particularly for males, because... and. Look, this, the military is on 13% females, right? Masculinity mm-hmm. is dominant there. And even the females in the military, good, better, and different, have to be alphas to a certain extent if sure. they want to survive and thrive in that environment. So that masculinity blocks vulnerability. And we are always taught, and we touched on this a little bit about that struggle that goes on in your head. Well, I, I can't lose this fight, or I, I can't be this, or I can't do that because there's a mission ahead. There's a there's a problem to solve. There's a family to lead. There's a there's a whole variety of different things. Um, that masculinity can be very debilitating uh, and and cause a lot of internal strife. Yeah, for sure. I mean, anything that anything where you're telling yourself that you're not allowed to deal with something. Right. Um, and I think the term you're referencing, which does get thrown around a lot is this idea of toxic masculinity. Yes. That was right? the word I wasn't going to yeah. use. I knew you were yeah. super smart. No, and That's well, why we'd be good running mates. Cause you knew exactly what I was saying. <laughs> and, and I, I wanted to, I think I understand how people use the word and. Um, it's got such a bad connotation though. Yeah, well, because I think, you know, oftentimes it's used in a way um, that I think is not inaccurate a lot of the time where it's toxic masculinity in the sense that uh, it creates a toxic environment for people, uh, you know, other than you. And that, I think, can be true. In this case, I think the way we're talking about it is, is how it can be toxic to ourselves, right? And and to me, um, you know, I think that's really relevant here. Like, look, I... I felt like for a long, long time, I would say I didn't earn my PTSD because I didn't get blown up, you know? And, and so I would, I didn't even say I didn't earn my PTSD. I would say I didn't earn PTSD. So therefore I can't possibly have PTSD. Well, a little bit of that was me trying to aim toward masculinity because I was feeling like if I claimed the mantle of PTSD, well, that's stolen valor. And that's not, a man would not steal valor and I'm a man, you know, and, and I want to, there's a certain kind of man I want to be. And so I guess what, what I found was one, I had to realize, well, I'm not stealing valor. I have PTSD. Um, that was a big part of it, but also eventually getting to the point where I would go, okay, uh, I need to cry about this, like whatever it is, right? Like, I, I think I need to stop and cry about this thing that's upsetting me, which sometimes I do now, or I need to, um, uh, I need a bath. Like I, I want a fucking hot bath, man. Well, you know, that's okay. Because uh, what those things allow me to do is things like go coach my son's little league team and do and be present and do a good job at it or go, you know, I play, I still play baseball. I play in a over 30 in an over 30 wood bat league. I did great uh, still hanging on to our youth. I do. Oh, I thing. love it. I'm basically in little league, you know, I'm out I, there I stealing catch, bases catch nine and, innings in 95 degree Georgia heat. It's, it's fantastic. Oh yeah. Like, you know, exactly. Like I'm going to play tonight. Uh, and, um, I'm gonna, I, there, we're, really, <laughs> yeah, there's this guy, this pitcher on this other team who has a hell of a slider. I'm going to try like hell to hit it, but taking care of myself, uh, allows me to go be an athlete, uh, even at 41, like, you know, age adjusted, but I'm still using the word athlete. And like, I think that's pretty manly. And, and so I guess what it is, is just learning to update the idea of what it is to be masculine. And I think at the end of the day, what it is more than anything else is being there for your family. And just like we learned, like, I remember, you know, 
it being explained to me of like, you eat last, you're one of the officers, you eat last and, and everything. But then also a good uh, instructor that I had once was like, and yeah, you got to make sure your soldiers get to sleep. But by the way, you need to sleep. Don't stay up on watch all night because you have to make decisions tomorrow that affect their lives. Yeah. Well, it's the same, you know, like I need to be able to be there for my family, which means I might, I might need to meditate and I might need to go to therapy this week so that I can be a good dad and a good husband, which is what a man does. Yeah. I mean, again, it's, it's, uh, and, and the, again, I didn't want to use the word toxic because I, I, it's just more debilitating. I, I think it's, more, it's so politicized. It's poisoning. It, it, it's self poisoning, right? It's, it's, it's eating bad tuna. It's, you know, it's like the mm-hmm. level of that. Like it's just, it doesn't end well for you internally. If you don't, if you don't acknowledge that that masculinity has an effect on the way you think and act. Uh, and you've said this a couple of times and I'll say it out loud just because I probably need to do it more, but uh, self-compassion is, is something I suck at. Um, it's not, it takes a lot of practice. I still suck. Uh, at it. I'm just I mean, better than I used to be. I, I'm, I'm great at accepting compassion from other people. So if any of you have it, you <laughs> well, say you say that, but probably you're not because probably in your head, you rebut it when they get, when they are compassionate toward you, which is what it is to lack self-compassion. Yeah. I mean, there's, that's a very astute observation. I hadn't, cause that's what I've always done. I hadn't processed that yet. We're, 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 we're only an hour into our therapy session. I hadn't, I hadn't <laughs> Um, and, and like the VA, I won't be charging you. Oh, well, so. that's, that's good. Uh, but I, this is actually better than most uh, most VA sessions. Um, you know, and you also talked about the effect of, you know, your children being able to coach your kids baseball game. You know, the other thing that you and your wife so eloquently touch on is parenting uh, in the wake of all this and, and mm-hmm. that challenge in and of itself and what it is, because you know, like I said at the top, you know, the impetus for me being here is being is because I'm a parent. And, and you know, the idea that you can pass your PTSD on to your children, or at least some of the behaviors of it. No, yeah, it's a real thing. Scared the living crap out of me. Yeah, me too. And and I remember the first time uh, there was another guest on the show. And this is, this, believe it or not, too, this show is a big part of why I got to where I am, because I've heard so many people share their story with me that it helped me realize that I, I probably need to start sharing my story with some people who could help me. But, you know, um, th- there was a guest uh, on the show. Uh, it'll take me a second to remember his name. But anyway, he talked about passing his PTSD on. And I remember after uh, after that episode was finished recording, I texted my wife and I simply asked her, am I teaching our kids to be screamers? Sure. And she didn't understand the question. She goes, what do you mean? Like, I don't understand. I'm like, am I yelling so much? that our kids are only going to understand yelling and that's how they're going to respond to other people, you know? And that was a real come to Jesus moment for me. Uh, And and that was the kind of like one of the first, very first moments where I realized, okay, it took me like another two years to actually go and get help. But uh, that was a very much a seminal moment uh, for me when I realized that I heard um, that, that, that was something that I could have really done to my children. Yeah, man. It's a real thing. I I worry about it all the time. Here's the flip side to it. Uh, If there's a silver lining and and I've got to run in a second, so maybe it's a good place to land. Um, The silver lining to this is the going through a lot of therapy. uh, And I don't know what, what defines a lot, like, you know, a year or so of therapy um, allows you to also have this parenting superpower that like, you know, not all parents have, which is, I have a lot of language now to give to my son and my daughter about their own feelings. They don't have to have had trauma for the, for them to benefit from what I've learned. So like when, you know, Mr. Rogers always said, uh, children's feelings are real. And in a lot of ways, they're even stronger than our feelings, right? Because they've had such a limited sample size that when they feel something, they feel it so strongly. And as parents, we have a tendency to be like, oh, okay, look, so you lost your favorite, you know, dinosaur toy. It's not that big of a deal when actually when you compare it to everything else in their life, that might be the biggest deal. It might be huge. And, and so it's helped me learn, like, I'm not going to dismiss that feeling. I'm going to teach my son, like, well, that's a feeling you're having. That's an emotion. Let's investigate that. Let's take that really seriously. So on the one hand, yeah, like I've had a, a bad habit 
it at times of raising my voice or getting super stressed and walking away and when when I shouldn't and whatever. But but on the other side of that is I now have this thing that I can equip him with where I can be like, hey, feelings are real and they're really important and emotions are really important. And let's learn a lot of different words to describe our emotions so that it's not just angry, sad, and happy, right? So that's what I'm taking from it is all this stuff I've learned in therapy, I'm teaching my son about it. And I'll eventually teach my daughter when she's older uh, so that as he goes through life and is, you know, very possibly like, what is it? They think like 20% of the population at some point in their life experiences trauma, you know, which means he has a one in five chance of experiencing some sort of trauma in his life. My hope is, is that he'll be better equipped to deal with it than I was. Hell, maybe that one in five thing is just me being his dad. Well, okay. At least I'm giving him some tools, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, it's look, uh, I think all everything that you, you touch on in the book, um, resonates. I know it does with me and, and anybody who's dealing with PTSD or, or has had some sort of military related trauma in their, in their career uh, can absolutely draw something uh, in this book that will resonate with them to a point where, you know, it's almost like a call to action to a certain extent. And I think that really is, um, you know, I, I, the super important thing uh, and, and take it from me. And again, uh, I, I, I'll forever be indebted for the relationship that we've created and, and the tools you gave me to, um, more than anything, Jason, honestly, just to pick up the phone and text you mm, and you bet. ask you, how do I do this? And tell yeah. you, and, and, and really in reality, somebody, you know, is not a close friend, right? I mean, we, we have a, you know, wonderful discussions and mm. you've been there to guide me through this whole thing and help me with certain steps along the way. Um, but you and I are far from anything we would consider friends on more than professional acquaintances, but you, you always made it safe for me to be able to acknowledge that what I was feeling was okay to feel and that there was a way to go ahead and not feel that way anymore. Uh, and, and again, I think I said it more eloquently now than I did at the top of the show as I stumbled over it. But for that, again, I, I, I thank you. Um, and I hope that this book continues to pave the way for others to be able to do the same thing, to, to acknowledge that there is another door to walk through and that there is somebody else out there who's feeling what you're feeling and you're not alone and all those cliche things, but more than anything that um, you're sort of entering a new phase of your life, right? Like there is a, there, there is a way that you're going to have to learn to live with PTSD where you can try to fight it and struggle with it, but living with it is success and fighting it is always going to end up usually on the wrong side of it. Um, yeah, man. It's faster than you and it's a better fighter than you. So <laughs> fucking figure that out. Right. You know, no, but I, I really appreciate it, Mark. Uh, look, military is a brotherhood. So, uh, you know, I, I, it means a lot to me to be able to be there for you at all. And um, look, we all feel better when we feel valuable and that makes me feel valuable and I appreciate it. Um, and uh, last thing I'll say is I'll promote the book one last time, which is, yeah, that's what I was going to do next. Invisible yeah. Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD from Mariner books on sale july 5th so if you're listening to this it's already on sale which is great to know and you can get it i assume everywhere you get books yep anywhere you get books and if you want to just go straight to somewhere to get it uh you can go to invisiblestormbook.com which will take you right to a link where that supports like independent bookstores and that sort of thing if, if that's what you're interested in so uh thanks man i appreciate it very much good luck in your game tonight uh it's going to be about 90 something here too but i'm going to be in center field i'm not going to be behind the plate that sounds way worse uh, listen there's a reason why they're the tools of ignorance no ignorance and only the ignorant wear them but uh, <laughs> honestly my friend thank you so so much uh for your companionship and uh and your compassion and and leading the way on this it, it, it is super important right on thanks man jason Cantor, thanks again for being part of the hazard ground you've been listening to kill cliff's hazard ground podcast hosted by mark zeno if you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.